This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au If you are uh, new or visiting here this morning, I want to add a special welcome to you. Um, We feel honoured that you are here, uh, whether it's because you're exploring faith, you found a sign out the front, or your Christian friend invited you to lunch and forced you to come here first, whatever the case, um, we do do that by the way, Um, whatever the case, we're glad you're here and we hope you feel blessed by being here. Um, If you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, you know we've been going through Uh, the story of one of the patriarchs of the faith, a guy named Jacob. Um, Jacob's story is really one that's plagued with messiness, it's plagued with brokenness, it's plagued with deceit, which is actually kind of what his name means. And ever since he was born, Jacob really has this tussle um, with his own messiness and brokenness. It starts really when he comes out of the womb, when he comes out with his um, twin brother, Esau. And um, that's really where the messiness begins because uh, their parents named Esau Esau, which actually kind of means hairy. And that's parenting 101. You don't name your kid after something he could be teased about in school. So his story is one where he's... Uh, manipulating circumstances, he's trying to get birthrights that aren't his, he's deceived himself, he tries to marry one person but he gets tricked by his father-in-law into marrying the wrong sister, so he has to work another seven years to get the one that he actually wanted. It's just, it's just a mess of brokenness, of deceit, of sinfulness, but the story is one which is a common theme throughout Scripture that God works through that mess, that God is faithful to his people, he's faithful to his promises, in spite of the mess and the brokenness that we offer him up so many times. So it's a story of God keeping his promises that he had made to Jacob's grandfather. Jacob's grandfather was Abraham. He was, by all accounts, this random Chaldean guy that God had chosen to tell his story of redemption through. He made promises to him that he will make his name great. He will be famous. He said that through you, I will make a nation. And through you, through your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. God had chosen to tell his redemptive story through this particular family. This family becomes a nation. That nation spurts out a descendant by the name of Jesus. And really the whole story, I think Martin Luther, uh, the German reformer, I think sums it up with one of his quotes. He says, God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. God can work through the mess and still be faithful to his promises. It's part of the power of God, the providence of God that he can do that. And so before we get stuck into the story, I'm going to pray for us. So if you are the praying type, why don't you pray with me? Father, we want to thank you um, once again for this opportunity you've given us to hear from you. Lord, you've promised that when your word goes out, it does not return to you void. And so, God, we ask by your spirit this morning that you would act, that you would please, Lord, work within our lives to change us, to renew us, to bring that work that you have begun to its full completion, whether we're here taking our first step of faith or our next one. Father, I ask that uh, 
you would give us attentive hearts to hear what you would say and attentive minds and ears as well. And it's for the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen. Well, we pick up the story after Brad last week explained that um, uh, Jacob has 12 sons now. Um, He has seen the goodness of God, that God is delivering on his promises. Now he knows that he's going to have a family. He's going to have a family line. But before we get stuck into that, I do want to ask and see if you have been paying attention to the news recently because there has been an outrageous story that has swept the nation. I didn't expect it to, but it has. It's really impacted a lot of people's lives. Um, People are furious about it. And it's affected a lot of people's uh, Saturday afternoons or Saturdays um, that they would plan out. And it's simply this. Now when you go to Bunnings, you cannot have your onions on top of your sausage. It has to go on the bread first and then the sausage goes on top. Now, you laugh because it does seem quite banal and meaningless, but people are outraged by this. There has been petitions that go... Online, there's been 8,000 people say that they're willing to show up to a protest at any local Bunnings. There's 30,000 people who have said that they're, they're interested, they want to hear more about this. It, it, it's not something that I thought would, would get the kind of coverage that it has. But I think it's actually quite a commonsensical rule that they've put in place. They're trying to protect people from slipping on onions, which they've had people do that in their in their centres, and it's impacted people's lives. But people are outraged by it. And the outrage has found its way online, and I think it's pretty funny. Um, but there is this one tweet, which should be on the, on the screen behind me. A gentleman who was outraged said, What an outrage. Onion first? What's next? Cheese before the patty on a burger? Oh, H&S gone mad. Hashtag sausage gate. And hashtag onion oppression. The guy who takes his bunning sausage sizzle seriously. And one lady who was even more infuriated came up with this hashtag, what is the point of living? (laughs) Now, obviously, some people are poking fun at this, but other people are taking it quite seriously. And it got me thinking in a weird lateral way, um, these people are trying to protect something that they think is sacred to them that they think is actually really valuable to them. Now, I don't know what that is. I don't think it's really the onions, but it must be something else. And it got me thinking, what, what what lengths would I go to to protect something that I think is valuable? I wouldn't show up to a protest about onions, but what lengths would I go to to protect something? And we make that sort of decision every single day. You guys have locks on your doors, I'm assuming. You've decided to protect your belongings inside, whether that's people, whether that's stuff. I'm assuming a lot of you would have insurance as well. You've chosen to protect your investment in a car or in a house or something like that. We make decisions all the time to protect those things that we we think are valuable. But I wonder, how, how do you protect things that are a bit more ideological? How do you protect your integrity? How do you protect your promises that you make to people? How do you keep your word? How do you protect your heart when you're three dates deep and you realise the guy's a bit of a doofus? Like, how do you protect 
those things that are so valuable to you. And this morning we, um, we tackle a passage of, of Scripture where the, the heroes of the story are not really those who are the main characters in the story. But the hero of the story is God because he is protecting his promise that he has made to Jacob's forefathers and to Jacob, that he will prosper Jacob, that Jacob will be able to return to his homeland. And in through circumstances, through actively saying things throughout the story, God is protecting his promises. And after, after the last son of Jacob is born, Joseph, we pick up the story where Jacob is really, he's seeking to get away from Laban, his father-in-law. His father-in-law has given him poor working conditions. His father-in-law has prospered because of all of his work. And he now wants to leave and make something of himself and also fulfill the promises that God has given to him. And so in verse 25, at the beginning of the chapter, in, uh, in chapter 30, verse 25, it says, After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, his father-in-law, Send me on my way so I can go back to my homeland. Give me wives and children for whom I have served, served you, and I will be on my way. You know how much work I have done for you. Laban had prospered immensely because of Jacob's work. And Laban doesn't really want to let him go, understandably so, because he's his number one worker. But he knows that God is kind of on Jacob's side, so he decides, you know what? What do you want? I'll send you on your way. And Jacob says this in verse 31. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied. But if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark colored lamb, every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages and my honesty will testify for me in the future whenever you check on the wages you have paid me. Any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted or any land that is not dark colored will be considered Stolen. We see Jacob kind of changing a little bit in this story. He's seeking the honest route rather than the dishonest route to get his way. And he really makes, it's a pretty stupid deal. Because he's essentially saying, I will take all the rarest livestock, all the rarest animals. Send me on my way with them. But Laban is still not happy with this. So he takes the existing spotted and speckled animals, gives them to his sons and puts three days' journey between the two of them. And Jacob's not deterred by this. He starts engineering a way for the things to, to happen. And he does a lot of stuff that they believed at the time would produce spotted and speckled livestock. They thought that oftentimes if during the mating um, the, the, the livestock see something bright that somehow that brightness would infuse itself on the embryo and therefore you get a spotted or a speckled livestock. And he really tries to increase the, the odds in his favour by just increasing the mating rate of all the livestock. And it really wouldn't help him that much, to be honest, but God chooses to bless this. God chooses to prosper him with this. And he ends up with so much livestock, this is how he becomes wealthy. And he trades it to get everything that he needs. And Laban hears about this. And him and his sons think that they're being robbed. 
And then Jacob hears what Laban thinks of him. It says in chapter 31, verse 2, Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. But God steps in at this point and says, Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. And so Jacob goes to get his wives that are Laban's daughters, tells them the story how God is prospering him, not Laban. And they agree that they're going to go because they feel like their father is actually stealing their inheritance to make himself prosper. And they see that God is prospering Jacob, not their father. So they say, we'll go with you no matter where you go. But Jacob knows that Laban doesn't really have his best interest at heart. So he sneaks off in the middle of the night and takes everything that he owns. And then Laban catches up to him. He pursues him. He's furious. He brings his sons along. He thinks, my goodness, they've stolen everything from me. And he does this thing that um, if you've ever been caught out lying or you've, you've caught someone out lying, it's this natural instinct to try and take the focus off yourself and onto someone else. You try and paint yourself as the victim. Or you try and sort of shift the focus off yourself anyhow. And Laban's approach is really, hey, I'm the victim here. You've misread my, my intentions. He catches up to him and says, why did you secretly run off and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me, in verse 27, so I could send you on your way with joy and sing to the music of timbrels and harps? Pfft, yeah, right, as if that's going to happen. Jacob had made a deal with Laban before and he gave him the wrong daughter to marry. I've made deals with you before, pal. You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you. But last night, God had stepped in again to protect Jacob, to protect his promise. And he said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. It's interesting how God deals with a, with a deceitful person. Because anything that you say to a deceitful person, you're really going to see that it's not used in the way that you often intend it to be. So God just says, basically, say nothing. Don't say anything, good or bad. But Laban continues, Now you have gone off because you long to return to your father's household, which is understandable. But why did you steal my gods? Now Jacob doesn't know at this point that Rachel, his wife, had actually stolen her father's household gods. And it's easy to kind of see this as some sort of religious unfaithfulness on Rachel's part. But really, Rachel is stealing the household gods because the household gods were kind of like the papers for the inheritance. They weren't necessarily something of religious significance. But she's thinking, my father has robbed us. He's used everything that was going to be an inheritance for us. And he's used that to build his own wealth. So therefore, I'm going to take his ticket to the inheritance. That's how I'm going to get him back in the future. But Jacob doesn't know this. And so Jacob says, you know what? Search all my stuff. You won't find anything, but search all my stuff. And Rachel, at this point, his wife, has got to be panicking a little bit. And how do you, how do you win an argument that you know you're wrong at? Now, you can do a couple of things. Um, you can play the power card, the trump card, which is if you're a boss or sometimes if you're a parent, um, you can say, you know what, I've said it, so do it. 
I'm more powerful than you. I'm above you in the org chart, in the family chart, whatever it is. Just do it. Or you can sometimes, if you've been caught out, you try and take the focus off the issue and you sort of point at that person and say, remember when you did this back then? Yeah, well, that was far worse than this. And all of a sudden, the focus is over there. But Rachel comes up with my, I wouldn't say my favorite trump card, but I think the most effective trump card there is. She takes the household god, she puts it in a bag, and she sits on the bag. And then she says to her father, while her father is searching for everything, don't be angry, my lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. Case closed. No one's looking after that. (laughs) That's how you win that argument. Laban's not looking for anything anymore. And it says, so he searched but could not find the house of God. Of course he couldn't. And Jacob gets angry with him at this point. He says, you know, what have I done to you? I've worked for poor conditions for many years. You've prospered because of me. You've changed my wages all these times. You've manipulated. You've lied. You've done all this stuff to me. What have I done that you have pursued me like this? And Laban answers him with what I could only classify as the equivalent of like a granddaddy tantrum. He says, you know what? Yeah, well, everything is mine. The daughters are mine, their kids are mine, the livestock is mine, everything you see is mine. But he knows he's been caught out and he knows that God is favouring Jacob in this story. And so he makes a deal that says, you know what, at this place, at this time, we're going to make a covenant, we're going to make an agreement and that agreement is going to say, I'm not going to go after you and you're not going to cross over this point and come after me. So they make this deal It's all done, and they go about their ways, and it acts as a border between them into the future. Now, it's easy to hear a story like that and think, why is that an important story? Why was that chosen to be recounted in Scripture? It's messy, there's deceit, there's all sorts of weird and wacky things going on, but really it's a story of of God protecting his promise to Jacob, God protecting his promise to Abraham. You know, I watched a, um, a movie recently. It's not a recent release, but I watched it recently. It's a movie called The Terminal. Um, and if you haven't seen it, what are you doing with your life? It's directed by Spielberg. It's got Tom Hanks in it. Get out there and see it. But it's, a, it's, it's this really lovely story about a, a guy named Victor Navorsky. And Victor Navorsky comes from this obscure Eastern Bloc country. And as he's flying to New York, his country erupts into civil war. And what it means is he can't actually go back to his own country. But also, because it's, his government has been overthrown, his passport is now no longer recognised by any country. So he has this awkward circumstance that he can't pass customs and he can't go home. So they make him live in the terminal. And really, Viktor Navorsky is a problem that no one wants on their resume. So they try and manipulate and find ways that he sort of breaks laws and goes through customs illegally so they can arrest him. At least they know what to do with him then. They try and starve him out. They try and do all these manipulative things to just get rid of him somehow because they don't want him living in their terminal and that that is part of their resume. And we get to the end of the story, the civil war ends, he can go home and he's asked to go home, but he chooses not to. 
he chooses to go to New York, what he originally wanted. And really they say, no, you can't go there. But he insists and he wants to go there. And the reason he wants to go there is because he wants to keep his promise that he made to his dying father. His dying father was a jazz enthusiast and he had all the signatures of all 57 of his, 56 of his favourite jazz artists, but he needed one more. And so he made his son, Victor Navorsky, promise that he would go and get that signature. And he did. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, you know what, your father's dead. He's not going to know whether you did it or not. Like you faced opposition, there's... There's clear pointers that saying you can't go through with this, you have to go home, but he still chooses to go through with it. He chooses to keep his word. He chooses to keep his promise. And we love those kinds of stories. I mean, the movie might be a bit slow and obscure, but we love those stories of people with integrity, keeping their word, keeping their promises. Why? Because that's the narrative we're made to connect with. Because that's the God we're made to connect with. A God who keeps his promises in spite of all the obscure circumstances and everything that comes up. God keeps his promise to Abraham to make him into a nation. He gets made into a nation through Jacob's descendants. He keeps his promise in spite of at every turn it seems like this nation is unfaithful. It splits, it gets conquered, it gets sent into slavery. But God is still faithful to his promises. And one in particular that through this nation, through this family line, will come a seed, a descendant. And through them, the whole earth will be blessed. And that person is Jesus. And God keeps his promise to show mercy, to show forgiveness. But he keeps his promise to not do it at the expense of his justice. And Jesus does that by taking that sin debt that you and I owe upon himself. And he pays that for you and me. So he can offer it freely to whoever would believe in him. That is the God we worship. That is the God of the Bible. That is the God of Jacob. A God who is faithful to his promises in spite of the mess, in spite of the chaos, in spite of the sin that we offer up all the time, in spite of our failings and messiness. God is faithful to his promises. He will not let his promises go. And so my question for you this morning is simply this. Do you trust God to keep his promises? Do you trust God to keep his promises concerning you? When Jesus says, I will give you rest, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Do you really believe that? Or is your heart as anxious as it's ever been? When God promises that whoever calls on the name of Jesus will find salvation, do you really believe that? Or are you still worrying, am I saved? Do I have the Spirit guaranteeing my inheritance because I don't feel the warm and fuzzy feelings I felt when I gave my life to Jesus? When God promises to make you a new creation, that the work He has begun in you by His Spirit when you give your life to Jesus, that He will bring that to completion. And one day you will marvel at His work. Or do you revert back to sin management, to sin cover-up? When God promises to hear your prayers, 
no matter what circumstance they come through, do you just feel like you're talking to the ceiling? And the thing is, there is so many promises that God has concerning you, concerning your future. And surely you would see that through the story of Jacob, God works in circumstances and in ways that Jacob never would have anticipated. But he can look back and see how God had been faithful to protect his promises concerning him. He might not have known it in the moment, but he looks back and he sees that. My hope for you is that you see it in your life as well. In weird and wacky circumstances, in mess, in sin, in brokenness, whatever the case may be, God wants more for your life and God has a better future planned for your life than you could plan for yourself. And you might not see it, but God's history shows that He is faithful to His promises. He is faithful to His people. And my prayer is, my hope is, that you will walk out of here and have confidence that your future will resemble that. That your future will resemble God keeping His promises to you. Might not look look like it in the circumstances, but He will not break His promises to you. He's protected them all throughout history. He's protected them in your life so far. And He will protect them going forward into your future. Let's pray. Father, you're a good God. You're a God who wants more good for us than we would want for ourselves. Lord, you're a promise-keeping God. And we want to give you thanks this morning that we know and trust and can trust our future into your hands because you are the promise-keeping God. Those promises that we find in Scripture about us, concerning us, we know that you are faithful to keep them. That those who call upon the name of Jesus will find salvation. That never will you leave us, never will you forsake us. You will walk with us all the days of our lives and you will work out all things to our good despite what we might see, despite what our perspective might be. Father, help us as people to grow in trust with you, to trust you more and more each day with every corner and nook and cranny of our heart. Father, help us to trust. And it's in Jesus' mighty name and for his glory we pray. Amen.